Emerald podcast series. Research that makes a difference. Welcome to the Emerald podcast series. In this series, we speak to experts from around the globe using research to create real impact. In each episode, we explore the role of research within the context of the environmental, economic, social and political challenges facing our society and look at the ways in which research, policy and practice interact to affect communities around the world. We're your hosts. I'm Daniel Ridge. I'm Helen Bedo, and we are publishers at Emerald Publishing. Today, I'm speaking to Professor Katie Shaw from the University of Northumbria. Her research focuses on 21st century writings, exploring working class literature and cultural representations of post-industrial regeneration. Katie authored a recent report, The Common People Report, which identifies pervasive barriers in the way of working class writers, makes a clarion call for changes in the publishing industry and strongly recommends more effective and better funding collaborative working. The Common People Report aligns with Emerald's recent Inclusivity Report, which explores global perceptions around inclusion and the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which have set 2030 as a target date for achieving a truly inclusive global society. The report found that people within the UK identified class discrimination as the second biggest barrier to achieving an inclusive society by 2030 behind racial discrimination. I wanted to ask Katie about how the Common People report identified the ways class plays out as a barrier within the publishing industry. You can find the links to Emerald's inclusivity report and the Common People report in the show notes. So hello Katie, Uh, thank you for joining me today and welcome to Emerald's podcast. Thank you for having me. So why is having diversity of voice in what gets published so important? Well, having diversity of voice is incredibly important uh, now more than ever because you can't really function as a society without everyone's voice being heard and everyone's voice being valued and visible. Um, Representation is a right and it is a good. It is an economic good, a social good and a cultural good. And in terms of class in particular, if we're thinking about the current context being post-Brexit, post-COVID, and going back a little way, even though it feels like a very long way now, uh, post-general election and the so-called fall of the Red Wall in traditional working class areas of the UK, there's never really been a more vital point at which we need more diverse voices to be heard in our mainstream culture. You know, and the publishing industry in particular has a really critical role to play in helping to define the country's direction of travel. We've now got a very uncertain future. And the industry and government are trying to make strategic interventions and decisions to protect and grow the social and economic impacts created by publishing. And also the really vital relationships that publishing has with education and the university sector um, that enables knowledge exchange and talent development. So supporting and developing this real diversity of writers ultimately benefits everybody. And everybody needs to play a part in achieving that and also in promoting new voices for future generations. Class is one of those words we use a lot without always thinking about what it means. And it can be easy to skip that first step towards understanding. So so what do we mean by class? Social class is a really kind of contentious, slippery term, and not just for us, but for many, many generations in years gone by. And it's, you know, it's really controversial. It's changed in my lifetime, certainly as, as society and the economy and the labour market has shifted. And what we used to think about as, as working class professions, that was kind of heavy industry, manual labour, 
Well, they've now been replaced with retail and service sector employment. And this in turn has kind of changed the experiences and the expectations and the culture of the working classes in the UK. But certainly over the last decade in particular, there's been a real renewal of interest and analysis in social class and inequality. And this has really been driven by accumulating evidence about escalating social inequality, and notably in respect to things around social and cultural indicators like mortality rates and educational attainment. But the way we configure class in the 21st century is possibly more complicated than ever. Whatever definition that you fall on, one thing is unarguable, that social class remains a powerful force in creating the Britain of today and of the future. And how did this conceptualisation of, of class and these changes that we've seen over the last 10 years, how did that motivate the Common People Project? The Common People Project really arose out of an ongoing programme of work that we at Northumbria University have been working on with New Rating North, who are the biggest regional rating development agency in the UK. Uh, we'd undertaken a lot of research in recent years thinking about the publishing industry and issues like regionalism, and particularly the north of England, but also class diversity and representation more widely. And that really kind of grew alongside a, a kind of a body of work that had been going on in the, in the literary industry with writing like Kit Duval and publishers like Unbound starting to ask questions about a lack of working class voices in writing today, particularly a lack of working class representation in things like book festivals and events. So we came together on the project and tried to position common people as a piece of research as a kind of a strategic intervention to address this recognised problem. And with some funding from Arts Council England, we were able to do a research project alongside a commercial published anthology that was crowdfunded. So how do issues around class play out for working class writers? You know, what barriers and challenges did you identify within the report? Well, the research threw up some really interesting areas. So the project really fell into two areas. The first part was uh, the production of an anthology of new writing, which united our new self-identifying working class authors with some more established working class writers like Damien Barnes, Stuart McConey. And we produced that anthology commercially, sold it commercially, and the authors were involved in the entire process from kind of self-selecting and self-identifying as working class all the way through to doing book events and the launch, etc around it. But the other part of the project was a research project thinking about writing development. And I worked as researcher in residence with the writers and the publishers and the agents and the regional writing development agencies that were involved. Uh, over the course of a year from 2018 to 19 to think about the ways in which we could uh, develop the writers, equip them with the skills and the experiences that they needed um, and that they'd identified as lacking before um, engaging in the work. And some of those barriers that they identified were really interesting. One of the major ones actually was confidence, you know, confidence and so-called imposter syndrome, having the confidence to call yourself a writer and what that meant um, when you have a perceived lack of cultural capital. Another really important area was peer support networks, uh, having another writer to read your work or to talk about the process of writing with and to get some feedback on what you've written. But overall, I think the thing that came through perhaps most clearly from the research was a sense of a lack of industry knowledge and particularly of the unspoken codes that operate in publishing today. The kind of the unspoken conventions, the contacts um, and the areas and personal relationships that they the authors felt quite distant from 
and also, interestingly, didn't really see themselves reflected in the publishing industry as a whole. So if we look through the industry into those so-called gatekeeper roles, uh, we found lots of literary agents who were predominantly middle class, lots of editors who were very middle class, um, and a real lack of diversity in the publishing industry staff more broadly. So these authors were able to give us a real lived experience of their kind of encounters with publishing before and after the research. And so what are the implications of these barriers for how class is written about and what does and doesn't get published? I mean, what are the dangers of these voices being missing? I think the dangers of having a lack of representation and a lack of diversity in publishing is that we only are listening to part of a conversation or worse still, we're ultimately listening to a monologue. Because if we have middle-class people commissioning middle-class voices that relate to their own interests and experience, and we have unconscious bias. Um, And ultimately, this has profound implications, both for the quality and the nature and and the scope of the written work that we're being offered by contemporary publishing, but also for the commercial viability of publishing as an industry. So there's a clear economic imperative here about wanting um, a more diverse body of writing, because obviously if you're a publisher, you want to be offering something to everybody who's going to walk into a bookshop or buy a book. And if you're only representing a certain experience or a certain part of the country, you're not doing that. But also there's a more profound social and well-being and cultural effect here, which is quite simply, often if you if you can't see it, you can't be it. So how are we role modeling or validating the experiences of that kind of silent, underrepresented part of society? How are we acknowledging um, their experience and making it visible? And if we're not, what does that say about how they're perceiving, you know, their world that is not perhaps being represented in literature today? It's a bit of an echo chamber, isn't it? Mm, Yeah, and I think the danger with an echo chamber is that we're already operating in a world increasingly dominated by social media, where through following and liking, we can craft our own echo chambers. But unconscious bias is effectively doing just that. If you only include certain people in an industry or in a conversation, then you're potentially going to be blinkering yourself to a whole diversity of other perspectives and experiences. And I think we can be a bit guilty of thinking about class in isolation, but but class isn't a discrete category. So how did the report and how did the contributors to the report place their class identity in context with things like race, gender, religion, disability? Class, like many of these things, is deeply intersectional. And we approach the research with that at the forefront, really. You know, intersectionality is all about thinking about the ways in which our our social and political identities can align and can cross. And they can do that to either enable or disable privilege and advantage. And certainly, if we're thinking about things like class identity and placing them alongside race, gender, religion, disability, these are all overlapping interconnected sources potentially of isolation potentially of challenge but they're also interwoven and because they're interwoven and they cross over they can ultimately conspire to prevent people achieving their potential which is why you get this kind of phrase appearing a lot you know some of these doubly disadvantaged because they have you know a dual area of intersection so inequality is nuanced and its impact is not singular it has shades and it has layers and I think one thing that the emerald global Global Inclusivity Report really highlights well is that if you look at the potential sources of discrimination, and your report highlights, you know, the 
the top ones being recruitment and selection, leadership values and mentoring. These things have a really powerful role modeling ability to either open or close doors. And if we look at ways we can think about addressing this, you know, things like unconscious bias training in in selection, leadership training to show that we don't have a one model fits all size for leadership, and also for the, the power of mentoring. So I've worked for the past two years with Emerald on the Mentor and Me campaign around International Women's Day every year. And we've thought about the ways in which mentoring is appropriate process for men and women can be utterly transformative and a really powerful vehicle for tackling underrepresentation and promoting diversity but moreover for creating quite sustainable ecosystems of support and advancement for ensuring that these kind of these so-called challenges of diversity aren't something we're still talking about in 20 years time that if we tackle it in a way that is sustainable then it should create people who are out there and wanting to do the same thing rather than constantly having to reinvent the wheel i think this idea of mentoring and the the power of mentoring really came out in the common people report outcomes it really showed that mentoring made a difference to the people who took part in the project Yeah, mentoring was a really important part of the project. And when we evaluated the author's experience of engaging in it in the writing development program, um, they cited the mentoring as a really, you know, up there with one of the most valuable experiences of the program. We matched each of our new authors with an established author or industry professional at the beginning of the project. And they had that unique one-to-one time, I guess, and support and and validation and listening time. And so much of this is about dialogue and, and the importance of listening. But also really interestingly, when we when you look at the report, the feedback from the mentors who took part in the process was also just incredibly positive. You know, 100% of the mentors who took part would love to do it again. And they really benefited from it and gained something from it too. So I do think that idea of mentoring as being a one-way street is not, is not the case. I think mentors often feel like they learn as much from their mentees as the mentees do from them. Did the mentors uh, report ways they were going to change the way they worked? I mean, did they incorporate any of what they've learned into, into practice? I think certainly in terms of awareness and knowledge, it was eye-opening. Luckily, a lot of our mentors were already very forward-thinking. You know, I think that's a kind of a self-selection and wanting to take part in a process like mm. this and, and a mentoring scheme. Uh, interestingly, when we started talking to the wider industry, we would get a lot of, you know, DMs on Twitter and private messages going, oh, I'm, I'm a working class publisher or I'm an agent who came from a working class background, almost as if it was kind of a, a secret and a con- to us and wanting to be involved in the work and actually what we're seeing now is just that you know the the people who have taken part as mentors uh, some of them have gone back to their organizations and are now mentoring within those organizations so it's getting back to that idea of mentoring is not just kind of like a you know a one-off it actually creates this gorgeous kind of like rolling thing (laughs) that will evolve and grow as people take those practices and those cultures back into their own organizations I think there's um, something around having to fit in with the identity of publishing that changes how people feel about and, I guess, display class identity. I think that's absolutely true. And we've had feedback from people who work in publishing in those so-called gatekeeper roles who have said, oh, I felt like if I didn't level out my accent, I would stand out a mile or people would think less of me. If I didn't say I, you know, went skiing my holidays every year, I wouldn't have anything to talk about in the office. And there's loads of elements of people just knocking chunks off their lived experience in order to try and streamline themselves into this 
kind of socially expected norm within the industry. And actually, I think that that is definitely shifting. And as much as we are having these conversations and people are articulating these experiences, but also I think those people are really now invested in it not wanting to be that way for future generations in publishing. Uh, and mentoring is a really big part of that. And I don't think in a way that's exclusive to publishing. I think if you look at several industries, and I could cite academia as being one, people have still very pronounced cultural stereotypes of, of what somebody in publishing looks like and sounds like. And also in academia, you know, I'm very aware always that I am not what you might think a professor looks like and also certainly that when I was growing up as a little girl I never saw a female professor in my world and so there's that really important element of role modeling as well in terms of broadening participation in industries and that kind of links in for me to the decentralization agenda when it comes to publishing that if we have a huge percentage of all of our publishing activity and staff and skill base in London then we can't role model what those roles are to anybody in the regions we can't make publishing visible or accessible to anybody really in an effective way so I think the decentralization agenda is is really key to that too. Yeah Kit Deval said that the industry needs to wake up to a world beyond the M25 and you know, Emerald is one of a handful of academic publishing houses in the north. And I can confirm that it can feel a bit lonely up here. So, you know, why is it more important to have more investment in infrastructure in the north? It's just essential. And I think now we're talking in a post-COVID period, I think lots of these debates were occurring before COVID. And, you know, last year I went to Parliament with New Writing North and we gave evidence of the government inquiry. And our message to that inquiry about, you know, writing and about the industry was you need to get out of London because it's deeply unsustainable for many reasons to have an entire industry based in one place. And if anything, COVID has really functioned to accelerate some of those debates we were already having. Now, I think if you think about having any industry based in one place, it's deeply unsustainable and it's not resilient. And what COVID has made apparent is that if you decentralise an industry in much, you know, the same way that media has decentralised to Manchester and Salford with BBC into Leeds with Channel 4 and Sky, then not only are you making your skill set more broad and you're closer to the regions and the people you're trying to represent, but also actually you're diversifying your gatekeeper roles too and you're making your industry more resilient. And I do think that we need to, you know, use companies like Emerald and Hachette, who are also announcing regional office openings at the moment, to think about what regional offices look like, what a strategy for development into the nations and regions looks like for publishing. Because for too long, you know, there's been a so-called talent pipeline that runs from the north to London. And actually, what we're more interested in is thinking about how we can have a flowering of creative potential across the country as a whole, and how government should perhaps look to incentivise publishing to um, move to the regions in the same way as it has media. Absolutely. And I think, you know, COVID-19 has uh, demonstrated that you can work from anywhere. We don't need to be in one place to work effectively. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that, you know, the awful phrase that there's opportunity in a crisis, there's opportunity here for thinking about all of those issues that we were trying so hard to highlight before COVID hit. And for many of us in the North, we were already practicing some of these working patterns that people have now been forced to adopt because of COVID. You know, I'm based in Newcastle. For me to go to a a meeting in London would be a five hour round train trip that would cost hundreds of pounds. 
So prior to this, I was Zooming in and I was, you know, Skyping into a lot of meetings in London to reduce that travel and cost and the environmental impact. And now that everybody has proven through COVID that homeworking is liberating in many ways. Of course, it's got its downsides, but actually it reduces people's commutes, cost, it has profound implications on well-being. And also, for me, what I'm hearing from authors is that it's, it's had a really transformative effect on writing practice. You know, rather than being stood up on a train for two hours a day or driving a car, people have got time to write, people have got time to think. So I do think there's going to be new practices of writing and also of work and publishing that will emerge from this period. It's a real period of disruption to, to existing systems, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that for me as a researcher and as, as a critic of the practices of working prior to COVID, I can see in a way how it's kind of really just shone the spotlight on stuff that we were already aware of and were trying to address. You know, there the were many and are many inclusivity and diversity schemes within publishing. And now I think it's just made it even more essential that we think about quite structural, quite endemic changes to move away from the physicality of needing to go to London, Dick Whittington style, to succeed in publishing or um, be willing to live in the capital for two weeks with no money to do an internship at a big publisher for free or on minimum wage. Mm. Um, Now, certainly, um, I'm in a position today where a year ago if I'd wanted to put a literary agent in front of my students here in Newcastle that would have involved putting somebody on a train from London. Uh, Today I can go to a regional publishing office and hopefully in a year's time when Hachette are based up here in Newcastle I can go down the road and show them an editor or show them somebody who works in right sales or marketing and these are all really really important because not only are we diversifying the economy and developing the creative skill set in the regions but we're also making publishing as an industry more resilient and sustainable. So thinking about your report, what what are the main recommendations the report makes? You know, what needs to change? Well, the headline report recommendation was for the greater decentralization, really in publishing at, at every level. And I think we also made a very clear call for more literary agents to start basing themselves and their offices outside of London, mainly so we get a kind of a, a closer relationship with what's going on in the regions and the, you know, the sense that the world does not begin and end within the M25, but also that we change the profile of the gatekeeper roles in publishing as a result of that. But obviously, these changes we're proposing can start in publishing and publishing is really important to get the change right because it's a source industry. You know, it goes off and it feeds all the representations you see on TV adaptation and film. It's got a really, really important source role for for addressing representational disparity and, and improving diversity across a whole range of cultural representation. But we can't just have it happening here in isolation. You know, the government needs to incentivize the publishing industry to move in the same ways it did media industries and also we need to think about how models of strategic intervention like the common people project can leverage relatively little money to create quite big changes and make us think about some of these challenges that are facing us as a society today Uh, you know we need to think about ways in which we can support the regional writing development organizations that we have in the uk who are best placed to do that grassroots work with new writing and, and, and spot new writing talent 
But the main message from the report is about collaboration. You know, Common People was the first time that all of the regional development agencies had gotten together to do a big scale project like this. And um, it was the first time I'd worked as a writer and a writer and researcher in residence on a project like this, that we'd collaborated with agents and with Unbound on a big a big project like this. So it was really ambitious, but in improving the power and also the leverage potential of, of collaborative work that you can take a small amount of money and a lot of networks and in-kind working um, and time spent thinking about how we can work across sectors. It's really suggested to us that the way forward with all of this and for the publishing industry more broadly is to think about how we can use what we have and leverage it to better inform future planning and the policy of both government and industry. So working together as academics, as creatives um, in governance to try and find and share those new narratives about Britain today and to ensure that this contribution of having a diversity of voices can make a real change to the health and the well-being of the nation as we continue to develop. We kind of think of writing as this solo endeavour, which your report really shows that it's not, that it needs to be collaborative. And and it was actually very interesting for me to read it from a publishing perspective, you know, working in the publishing industry. Publishers, editors, agents, we are the gatekeepers. You know, while publishing houses say that they want to sign more diverse authors, it's clear that it's not really happening. And it's not good enough to, to just cite a lack of submissions or that we struggle to find diverse authorship. I think if there's one word that we really need to ban from our from our publishing lexicon, it's niche. Niche tends to mean anything that falls outside our kind of white middle class experience. And it shows that there's practices within the publishing industry itself that, that we can change. Could you speak more to some of those practices? Yeah, I'd certainly agree with that. And I think that, you know, niche itself is an incredibly subjective term because it depends on our own worldviews and experiences and our culture and our particular point in time. And if anything, I think that any moment or point of disruption where people are forced to change is going to be a pivot point for thinking about the ways we want to work in future, the kind of industry we want to see, and also the, the changes that are going to be necessary and how we go about those. And taking this as an opportunity to start pushing forward some of the changes we'd identified pre-COVID, I think for publishing is not only going to be a great commercial imperative for the industry to represent more diverse voices, but also it's now essential to its sustainability and its resilience in the post-COVID world. And I think that the, the kind of the barriers that you found in the report and the recommendations, like you mentioned earlier, they don't just apply to, to publishing, but these are common themes that we see across many industries. They are. And I think the common themes that cross different industries, different professions, quite often when you read into the, the kind of critical literature around them, some of the key headlines are the same. So if you think about, for example, in higher education, why we have a, a disparity of women in leadership roles in higher education, well, guess what? It's down to mentoring. It's down to unconscious bias. It's down to leadership values. They're the same things that are highlighted by your report. These are things that if you get right, they have a trickle-down effect. Um, you know, positive leadership values bleed into the organization in a great way. Effective mentoring creates a sustainable ecosystem that self propels itself uh, through the through the company or through the organization and creates a completely different inclusive diverse culture and ultimately effective recruitment and selection and conscious selection to think about the kind of organization you want to craft it's like baking a cake you know it's thinking about your ingredients and how you want something to to taste the taste of your organization and industry 
it's a process and it's one that we of course are going to be thinking about all the time and of course are going to be reviewing as we move on but the very fact that we're having these conversations I think is positive because we are now identifying models of intervention that might not necessarily be specific to a single industry but could actually form case studies of kind of more positive practices that we can then share across sectors. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you very much for speaking to us today, Katie. That was a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much.